Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. Just go to survivetheimplosion.com to get all the details. Today, my special guest is Jordan Brady over at respecttheprocess.com. It's another podcast, so it's my fellow podcaster. But Jordan has been in the business for a long time. He started out as a stand-up comedian, then got into filmmaking, and as a film director, as you'll find out, some of the films we talk about, and then has moved over to commercial directing, and as well as a documentary filmmaker. Now, we get into some fun conversations, so it gets a little colorful in terms of language. <laughs> so if you're sensitive to that, just, you know, be forewarned. So here he is, Jordan Brady on the Film Trooper podcast. What got you into filmmaking? What was your inciting incident? Did you like trip or fall and have an epiphany or something? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't name a magic moment. I think filmmaking kind of infected me like a virus. Uh, I was a stand-up comedian, and I was touring the nation back. This is in the comedy boom of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't grow up with a Super 8 camera, and my family wasn't, you know, well off or anything. We were on the other side of the tracks. So when I got a little money, I bought a video camera. And during the day, because, you know, as a comedian, you work about half hour to an hour a night. Yeah. And instead of smoking weed and watching <laughs> cartoons all day, I would smoke weed and make little shorts with this video camera. <laughs> <clears throat> and and it I caught the bug. So as I began uh, to work in television as a, an actor or doing comedy shows or I hosted some shows, I, I had an affinity for what was going on all around me, all the production. I see, I see. Very cool. So it was just sort of – but so then really actually I have to ask – what got you into wanting to be a stand-up comedian, uh, like class clown type thing? Or just now we're going back to figure out sort of the, the impetus of what led you down this creative path. I have a memory of being, <laughs> of being nine or ten years old in the back of a station wagon. Scott, back in the day, station wagons were everywhere, and there's, mm -hmm. no, there's no seat belts in the back back, right? You'd be yeah. in the way back. And you wouldn't even have a seat. You would just sort of slide around <laughs> with your brothers and sisters. And I remember reciting in my head the album Let's Get Small by Steve Martin. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, That was like his first comedy album. And I knew it. And other people were into George Carlin and Richard Pryor and the Mudbone character that he did and stories George Carlin would do. And they would do it at the talent show. And I love Steve Martin, but I wouldn't do Steve Martin bits at the school talent show. I would write my own routines thinking, well, you don't just do someone else's routine. It's, mm -hmm. not, like a, it's not like a band where you cover the song. So uh, I started doing my original routines. And then in high school, I started developing like, uh, you know, my the seeds of what would hopefully someday become a point of view. Oh, interesting. Very as interesting. A, as a comedian. I didn't know that then. I say that now as a filmmaker. Yeah. Because a filmmaker has to have a point of view to, you know, be successful, I think. I think it, that's a really great point. I mean, I think that uh, takeaway, you know, I'm, I'm not, the, you know, I'm not young either. I'm in my 40s. And so the journey of all this stuff progressing and not being able to shake off that sort of creative need to, like, make something 
or to do something is uh is always like inherently there <laughs> so to hear you talk about like you know i was in the back something clicked and i just you know was writing the you know my own material now you didn't grow up in los angeles did you when did you come out to la uh stand-up comedy brought me to los angeles uh after a brief stint in san francisco san francisco mm-hmm. is one of the um like san francisco and boston at the time were comedy meccas oh yeah to do when you were sort of a pure comedian when your goal was to be a comedian and i've talked about this on comedy podcasts a lot that stand-up comedy is really a means to another means Hmm. like you can name any comedian and there's there's one that i'm thinking of who happened to be in one of my early video camera videos (laughs) There's only one guy I can think of who is known for being a comedian and not something else. Well, who's that? His name is Brian Regan. Oh, yeah. And he's hysterical. He's, he's one of my favorite comics. Yeah. I guess you're right, you know? I mean, he had, for a while, I remember, God, years ago, like, I think, like, when E, e Network started, like, he and uh, some other guy had a show, but they were, like, piggybacking off, I think they were on K-Rock for a while, but, my God, you're right, Regan is... A cult, like people that know him and know his comedy, like just absolutely love him, you know. Right, and he's like, you know, most people would say they go, "Oh, Jordan, you're talking about uh, Jerry Seinfeld." Mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld's known. No, Jerry Seinfeld is known as a comedian who was on a show called Seinfeld. Yeah, and yeah. Louis C.K. the same thing. I mean, Louis C.K. is the closest to being known purely as a stand-up because um, he did all those HBO specials that led him to, you know, doing the FX show about his life being a comedian. Yeah. But it wasn't until he had a TV show that... That just blew up, yeah. blew up. Uh, Robert Klein is an old comedian mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was sort of a comedian known for only being a comedian. Yeah, I, I remember growing up, my dad would just have on TV uh, all the old comedians I, I, in terms of being introduced to Bob Hope, um you know, George Burns and with, you know, the early George Burns, you know, prior, you know, but when I was growing up as a kid, I mean, you watch on television, George Burns as an older man, uh, a senior citizen was still revered. So I didn't like, that's how my first impression with him, of him was. But then later on, there was a channel they used to play like all these old TV shows from the, you know, the heyday. So, I mean, I was able to see the Jack Benny show. I was able to see the, uh, the George Burns and Gracie Allen. I was able to see... Um, what's your line with the Groucho Marx that led me to watch the old, the original Groucho, the Marx Brothers movies. Like, so my dad had always had old movies on and had always had like, um, you know, the people that he grew up that he loved. So I didn't, and then all my friends would have, you know, trying to find, um, the other comedians in terms of like George Carlin and Richard Pryor and stuff like that. But that wasn't in the world of my, my dad was still like old school that way. So I got a chance to get, you know, education in terms of old school comedy. Um, but revere a lot of those people you're talking about, like Robert Klein and so on, who was kind of in the later, it's like what he was in the sixties that, and then really, I remember taking off like on Ed yeah, Sullivan the, and so on. The, um, the comedian of your father's liking, right? Mm-hmm. The, the George Burns and the Bob Hopes, Like, I remember being on an airplane once, and I was flying to a gig as a young man, and somebody next to me, they're like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a stand-up comedian. And they go, oh, you know who's a comedian? The best, (laughs) Danny Kaye. He he does it all, the singing, the dancing, the jokes, the stories. And he's right. Like, 
back then, an entertainer did more than just come out and do a, a monologue. Mm-hmm. That came that came along, and I don't want to digress from the show. Yeah, I know yeah. the listeners like the oh the no, film no 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 the all film good. talk, but I might be able to segue for you. You know that the entertainer was more well rounded, mm-hmm. but but the the modern comedian who's was birthed in the '60s and '70s and then honed in the '80s and '90s and now exploding yeah. in 2015 is is a writer, director, producer, performer. Mm-hmm. And on stage, an editor in his or her head. And I think that's what, that's what I liked when I started working in television as a, like a hired gun actor. Mm-hmm. Where I, I hosted a game show and I hosted a, this kid's show. And I realized, well, this is a, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful thing called collaboration that yeah. you don't get as a comedian. And then there's this uh, control that I'm missing from stand-up comedy. So wanting to be a director was perfect. <laughs> there you go. So how did you, um, you know, it's interesting. I remember years ago, I remember watching your film, The Third Wheel, because obviously at that time, and we had a star-studded cast and we had Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Luke Wilson. Um, uh, who else was it? The, what was the the girl who married? Denise Richards. Thank you. Denise Richard was the main love interest, right? And there's a ton of other people that show up there. I think even... Looking at IMDb, Melissa McCarthy, before she was Melissa McCarthy. Oh, my God. You know, let me tell you, Scott. Thank you. you. I told my kids, I go, you know, I put Melissa McCarthy in her first real role as and as Ben Affleck's love interest. How ballsy was that? Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, my gosh. So that that film was wild. I mean, what was the experience? Uh, did you guys already have – was it completely independent or – that was a hell of a cast to put together. Um, you know, I was – I'm again looking at this list. At the time, you even had a guy named Greg Pitts I remember from uh, Office Space. Office Space, yeah. Which was hilarious. But anyhow um, – yeah, I don't know. I was just curious because you you've been able to make that film, and then uh, according to your bio here, it also shows like some uh, a few other films too that had seen distribution. And I was wondering if you can kind of it's a different time, obviously, but what was that experience like being hired as a director, working with the the team that you were working with, working with some amazing actors? I mean, in, you know, historically watching you know what they've done and and having an opportunity to work with them like that, and then. Just was it just part of the norm that it was going to get distribution, or was it a fight, or or you know was it a win or a celebration, or or what the reality was? I think. Well, the, the third <laughs> wheel, the third wheel is a, is a loss when it comes to the fight for distribution. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and I'm guessing Scott that you and I have similar listeners mm-hmm. that that do independent film and the the DIY movement that we talked about on my podcast with you you know that's it it was a different time yeah. okay so if you're an indie filmmaker listening here here's what happened that you'll appreciate so i had written and directed a film feature film mm-hmm. and a long st- i'll keep it the abridged version in, i sold the pitch to hollywood pictures got paid to write the script and then it went into turnaround with the, you know, an executive shuffle. Look, when an executive that hired writer, you know, bought a pitch left, sometimes those pitches were dead when the new regime came in. Yeah. So what I did was I gave them the money back, $75,000 plus interest. I gave them the money back so I could own the script. 
Ah. And I took that script and and got uh, an amazing team of producers and and crew and uh, a casting director and put a cast together. It's called Dill Scallion. Mm-hmm. And everyone in that cast has gone on to uh, wonderful things. The stars Billy Burke, who's on this. Uh, he was on that show Revolution. He's the dad in all the Twilight movies. And we, yeah, he's, he's lovable. on it. Yeah, lovable, lovable <laughs> yeah. guy. Lauren Graham, who went on to do Gilmore Girls. David Koechner, who's an Anchorman. Kathy Griffin, and it, 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 so it was a it was a truly independent film made for about four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and that did really well. And as I was editing that film, the producers, uh, one guy who listeners may know from Project Greenlight. Chris Moore, yeah, kind of a tall bear of a man, big smile, great yeah. laugh, who was Ben and Matt's partner, producing partner. I don't know if he's on the new Project Greenlight or not. They ha- he's got a new one. It's on, <clears throat> I think. I believe it's, I can't believe it's, I think it's Showtime or HBO. There's like a new, it's kind of a new version of Project Greenlight, but he's involved with that, yeah. But, right, but, but Project Greenlight's back with Matt and Ben without him, right? Oh, but, maybe that's what it is, yeah. So, well, anyway. So these guys come to the edit room. Now you got to imagine that I have a small office in Hollywood and I rent an Avid. It's not even a, a real <laughs> Avid. Cuz this is in the this is like in 97 yeah, 90, yeah, yeah. 98 where it's it's the Avid Express where Okay. It's not made for film. It's made for like corporate videos, but I'm digitizing film. I'm the editor's assistant for an editor we had hired, great guy Sam Citron. Then after six weeks, he goes to do another movie. So I'm with the manual, like learning, <laughs> learning how to use the Avid. Yeah. And you had to have stacks of hard drives. It was crazy. And these Chris Moore and the other two producers came on, and they had sent me the script through my agent at the time, and uh, and I knew the writer. Like coincidentally, through comedy, I knew the writer, and the writer was going to be in the film. And about 20 minutes into watching Dill Scallion off of the Avid, mm-hmm. where I'm, you know, I'm pressing the space bar for the producer's seat, they go, yeah, you got the job. Yeah, we get it. You could do this comedy. <laughs> so so I, think, I think the third wheel was like $1.2 million that they had raised. And I'm a hired gun. And I put my influence on the script and rewrote some scenes with the writer, rewrote some scenes without the writer. And he was very unhappy about that. Hmm. Uh, he was, and since he was in the movie, it wasn't like you hear the Hollywood stories where the writer is kicked to the curb. Yeah, this guy's on set every day because he's in all the scenes. Yeah, and uh, Ben Affleck was going to play the main role. Well, then they win the Academy Award, and the movie goes silent for a year. Then they come back and they say, "Okay, we'll produce it. Make us producers, Matt and Ben." Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck says, "I'll be the buddy, and you cast my part." And you shoot me out in four days or whatever it was. So it was like a 24-day shoot. And uh, we shot Ben in four days. And he showed up for some other stuff. And so to Ben Affleck's credit, he stuck by his buddy, the writer, and got his movie made. And then the, you know, this is in a time when Merrimax and Ben Affleck are very tight. Yeah. So Harvey Weinstein came to the edit room. And Sam Citron, the same editor from Dill Scallion, is there. Harvey Weinstein sits sits with Sam Citron, the editor. They hit play on the Avid, hit the space bar. And then 20 minutes into that movie, Harvey Weinstein says, I'll buy this movie. <laughs> now, this is a lot of inside baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
if you have an $8 million movie star or whatever Ben Affleck was in the late 90s, yeah, wouldn't you just buy the movie if it was a piece of crap anyway? Just to keep him happy? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it, it looked like what it was. It was presented as like a independent comedy. Um, yeah, and you had enough star power there. Just put, the, put them on the posters. You could sell it, you know? <laughs> Exactly, and the the and the, in the foreign markets, it had a, like I, apparently it's big in Germany. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm serious. My sister yeah. lives in Germany. She's like, your movie's on TV all the time, but um, then Merrimax bought it, and they go, they had had a hit with uh, this Freddie Prince Jr. movie called Ten Things I Hate About You, or was that the one? Okay. Ten yeah. Things I Did Last Summer, or Ten Things I Hated About Last Summer, <laughs> something like that. Something like that, and they go, hey. Let's have let's have some more scenes. Let's write some more stuff. So a year and a a year plus later, and the writer had been in an accident. Oh. Luke Wilson had shaved his head. Oh, yeah. Like it was there's reshoots that we did. Well, they weren't reshoots, they were additional scenes, and that's where the guy from Office Space, uh, Greg Pritz. Yeah. Yeah, Pitts, Greg Pitts, Pitts. Pitts. Greg Pitts. They said, Hey, get the guy from Office Space. And basically we wrote him doing the exact fucking thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, you can, cur- you can curse. Oh. It's so good. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same fucking character in the third wheel that he had done in Office Space, which I think is so hack. Yeah. Like, But, you know, you're this hired gun director, and Merrimax has bought your film, and they're going to have me direct this other film. So it's like, well, I don't really, you know, I hadn't had a box office hit where I could throw a fit, yeah. and I'm not, I'm not a throwing a fit kind of guy anyway, but I did voice my opinion frequently, like, you know, this is basically ripping off the other movies and the other characters. And so I think the film, The Third Wheel, now available on Netflix, uh, is worth watching if you're listening to the podcast. Yeah. To see that it, it is a patchwork of, it just isn't a cohesive film, uh, which, look, I'll take the credit and I'll take the blame. Yeah. It just felt like, it should have been left alone for what it is because it was never going to rise above the indie romantic comedy mm-hmm. that it is. And, and then the, the end of the story, Scott, is that um, a few years later, after Matt and Ben had produced this and certainly tinkered around in the edit room, and they were Matt Damon, a very nice guy to me. Ben Affleck, I think I've seen him once since the movie. God bless him. He's Batman. But... You know, I think they inherited some of the dickish qualities of Merrimax from uh, from those days, like thinking yeah. that uh, they know best in the editing room. And am I bitter? Eh, a little bit, but I've let it go. <laughs> but th- a couple years later, I see they have the show Project Greenlight, yeah. where they'll find these first-time directors. So I look at the third wheel as Project Stoplight. <laughs> You know what? It's interesting. Uh, I remember watching that going, man, there's a lot of stars in here. But now that you explained it, it does make, you know, I haven't seen it in a while, but I can see what you were talking about. Like if where I can almost, I don't know, project my imagination where I would be in your your shoes too. Like, hey, what? Oh, okay. Well, you know, my gut's telling me like, I don't know about this, but you know, who am I to say? You got all this, all these things moving. Let's, let's just keep putting together and I'll do what I can to make this thing work. But I can see what you're saying. Like, um, 
I think you even mentioned like you had to switch a scene around because the 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 through line, the storyline of the the writer who was also like the the actor, kind of played like the angel character type thing. Right. You know, before you didn't, you never knew because it looked like Luke Wilson's character, the the protagonist, was like a like a stalker or something, and yeah, there's like switch it around so that the the audience was in on the the ga- or the the con or the 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 element of um, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, they were in on the fact that Luke's character had to do what he had to do on the date, but at least you ended it with a Bollywood number, right? You kind of had you kind of had like a nice, wonderful, you know, fun dance thing at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you want to you want to end with something upbeat and light. And yeah, it's kind of fun. I think something about Mary, you know, it had everybody singing. And, yeah, but you know, it's inter- it's interesting because um, the writer Jay Lacopo, super nice guy, super talented and funny both performer and writer, basically here's the deal. So Luke Wilson gets a date with Denise Richards and it's like his dream date and he can't wait and he's trying to plan the perfect date and he hits a a homeless man who then they're going to take to the ATM. (laughs) So right there you have to suspend your disbelief that you would actually say, hey, homeless man, get in the car and I'll pay you for hitting you in the leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then they go to the hospital and we find out the guy, you know, at the end of the movie, we find out he he's going to do it all over again. The con man, played by Jay Lacopo, the writer. Well, at one point during editing, and and we did this, I actually said, why don't we show that he's a con man before he even gets introduced? That's his first introduction to the movie. Mm-hmm. So that the audience knows the entire time, and therefore they're on the comedy journey with us. Like, if, if we know he's a con man from this scene, if we put it at the front of the movie, instead of revealing it at the end when it's too late, then everybody's like, Oh, and there's a little thrill knowing how come Luke Wilson doesn't know. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. It totally but, does. And it's, it's a great adjustment you made because I could see thinking back to the film, how if that didn't happen, like I think you mentioned before, the audience would be taken down this journey and then uh, like a left turn would happen. And there's that disconnect to be like, wow, what happened? You know, <laughs> unfortunately, it wasn't shot in a way that made it an editorial option that mm. I had hoped for. But um, the um, what was I going to tell you was. Oh, oh, oh. So he they hit this homeless man. And th- this was the point. Liev Shriver mm. was a great actor that I respect. Yeah. I had a phone conversation with him to play the Luke Wilson part. And he said, I can't get wrap my head around it because the antagonist, the homeless guy played by writer Jay Lacopo, is actually more likable than our hero played by Luke Wilson. Yeah. And see, I, he said, I don't think it's going to work. I don't see how we're going to root for this guy who needs the help of the a guy you're pretending to be the villain. And then from that conversation, did it help you make adjustments? It did, but not, not enough to get wide distribution. I but, see. <laughs> but, but, you know, again, I, I have to be honest, man. And you, you and I have talked about distributing our own films here mm-hmm. in 2015. It was a different time. And to make a comedy for, uh, for a million dollars and get it sold to Merrimax, and the producers are happy because they've got their money. Yeah. They, they, I think it was like $6 million worldwide they bought the all the english speaking rights wow right so it was is australia england canada cable you know what became digital 
So I didn't have very high expectations. I was just happy that it got picked up as opposed to going to all the festivals and trying to get a small distributor. Yeah. You know, I, I personally, I, Jordan Brady, the director, was like, yeah, can we get 2,000 screens or can't you open it, uh, open the film on Valentine's Day because it's a fun date and it's yeah. a wacky comedy. The biggest problem I had was not with, uh, you know, the the egomaniacal star producer or the, the writer, per, uh, actor. It was the uh, the foreign sales guy, Yoram Yoram Pellman, I think his name is. Yoram, if, if you're listening, you're probably still an asshole. <laughs> this guy, we made The Third Wheel. We ended up making another movie together, despite him being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Because, Scott, in the edit, like for, he wanted to change the name of the movie. Louis, it should be called The Perfect Date. And he has a thick Israeli accent. He, yeah. gives, he, he gives my Jewish people a bad name. Because he, <laughs> he just was conniving and a bully and, uh, you know, he he was the, both a foreign sales agent and a producer, mm. executive producer, and he, he he didn't have good taste. And I haven't heard from him in ten fifteen years. And you know me, Scott. I yeah. don't bad, I don't badmouth people lightly. I try to stay positive. But when you're fighting with the executive producer in the edit, and he's like, if it's Harvey Weinstein with a track record of improving films that he edits and the directors get all pissed, but yeah. he's cutting a three hour film down to an hour 45 and it becomes a hit. You go, maybe he has taste. Yeah. When it's my friend Yoram in the Valley <laughs> who's never had a hit and is criticizing everything. You just go, dude, step aside and we'll make it better. So that I was not prepared for that kind of battle. Like I thought, Oh, aren't we all on the same team? Aren't you supporting a vision? And so I put a lot of broad comedy in the third wheel and flashback scenes mm-hmm. that I fought to shoot that made the movie. And then there's some really funny stuff on the cutting room floor that take the tone of humor into a level that I think would have made it more successful. Interesting. Yeah. Well, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> well, no, I think like a lot of people, I mean, we heal. You know what? A lot of people on the outside thinking about going to Hollywood is. Maybe maybe you help this demystify sort of the process. Like you've been through it in terms of you have a, a, a healthy resume in terms of being a stand-up comedian, working as a comedian, then stumbling into and working hard to develop a film directing career. And then as things had transitioned, now you have a, a, you know, a thriving you know, commercial directing career as well and finding, um, I, I guess, a new life or, or a it's a whole new spin on things because it's, it's the way you come across very, um, on your podcast, which is fantastic. It's such a great podcast. Cause you can able to get, oh, thank you. You get in deep with, you know, other people in the industry that you can just talk shop with and you can talk about the process, which is a perfect name for your podcast. Respect the process. By the way, it's available on iTunes or, uh, jordanbrady.com yeah definitely i will have i'll be pushing this the links and everybody can find it for sure but i actually my takeaway from you is is uh you've got you know you got some battle scars as well because that's what happens when you work in any industry i guess and there's the idea is like if we follow that hero's journey you've come through you know some the abyss of some sort uh, on many occasions and what each time you come out of these types of situations what sort of um transformation or wisdom you know 
do you take with you to the next project and, and so on? I guess maybe that could be answered in terms of, and one of the questions I had sent you on the email was simply like, hey, what is your thoughts about the state of the independent film industry now? And where do you think it's going, you know, based of everything that you've already seen and kind of what's already been presented to you that, that just like your own wisdom of, of working in LA and knowing a lot of things in the past, present and future. Well, that's a, first of all, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the flattery. And, uh, I love the hero's journey, both the, the metaphor and the book, you know, Mm -hmm. the, yeah, it's Christopher Vogler or yeah, he, right. It's the writer's journey by Christopher Vogler. And I love that. Yeah. Cause Vogler did, cause I, I've tried to read Joseph Campbell's books and they're like, a heavy textbook like the guy just knows so much and it's it's really hard to digest and i'm, I, I, I'm not that smart <laughs> did you and i talk about that because i was just the other day and you and i talked last week mm-hmm. on, on respect the process i tried to read it and it's just such it's so dense and i'm not an educated man <laughs> and i just i try i thought oh but it list your listeners and you will love this uh the bill moyer tapes yeah Bill Moyer interviewed, he was a PBS guy that passed away, I think, recently. Mm-hmm. He interviewed uh, Joseph Campbell about the structure of myth and why myths resonate with us all and everything. It's a fascinating series for any storyteller. Yeah. And and I think my own hero's journey, if I can be so indulgent. Is oh, please. It's, it's here. You, <laughs> and do it. <laughs> well, when, you know, I started off making my own stuff. I started off as a stand-up comedian with total control. I embraced this collaboration through both the television that I directed and produced, uh, but even there I had some autonomy. But but I learned to collaborate and the, the value of collaboration and how it really elevates the work. And then I think I went too far into the belly of the beast where collaboration is clouded with uh, agendas. And, you know, my wife always makes fun of me like you you think like people have agendas and you gotta there's head games being played is that real and i can tell you in hollywood it's very real yeah you know that's why i say if you have an eight million dollar movie star that just came out of uh shakespeare in love and a few years later he produces a film you're gonna buy it just to keep the guy happy so he does your next movie yeah and and that's i mean that could be taken as a slight on my film the third wheel but um i'm just being real and I knew it at the time. So in dealing with, um, you know, Merrimax or Chris Moore and Ben Affleck and Yoram, the crazy Israeli sales agent, I learned that, yeah, people do things for different reasons. I learned that they have great ideas that benefited the film that I didn't think of, you know. So but the process, it gets uh, buried in a lot of crap and a mm-hmm. lot of bullshit. So. In like, then I made this film, Waking Up in Reno, that had Charlize Theron before she was really, you know, pre monsters, uh, pre monster. It had yeah. Billy Bob, Billy Bob Thornton, who was amazing in the film, but was you know, kind of a prick every other day and was late <laughs> to set. And you know, everybody's like, oh, he's just a good old boy. Yeah, in like designer jeans, and uh, so I don't buy it because I, you know, great guy, and I would kiss his ass to make another movie with him to get the performance that he can, I mean, he's a great actor. Yeah. He's won some awards and certificates for his acting. And, uh, and so what am I saying is that process was exhausting 
and I did basically three features. One that I had written and directed and basically raised the money with some other people and had a great time, had the best time of my life making this renegade uh, sort of indie runner. We, we literally took a bus around America and shot this film with a killer cast. Yeah. To then go into sort of a like a junior varsity Hollywood system with Merrimax and guys that, you know, Matt and Ben pretending to learn from Merrimax and by the way, super smart filmmakers. But Matt David makes some of the, I love his performance in almost everything he does. And The Town and uh, what's the, the other one that we love where they went in uh, Argo. Argo. I mean, Argo, Ben Affleck is clearly a gifted director. And a you know good actor. I, I like him in Batman. I'm I haven't even seen it yet. I love yeah, yeah. him. I'm in the trailer, so I'm not taking it away. I'm just saying at that time in my life, I was maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe I wasn't. I was a bit overwhelmed. So what I take out of it is well, what was was, and what shall be shall be. And I try to be very zen. I'm much older, and I I said after that experience, I'm going to take three years. I'm not going to pitch a movie i'm just going to do commercials because hmm. i i've always loved commercials yeah along with steve martin i'm going to kind of go tarantino on you and jump time jump back oh, please go ahead in my narrative so i'm in the back of that station wagon listening to uh listening to steve martin i'm going home every day to watch adam west as batman and then i'm watching bewitched and I just love that Darren from Bewitched <laughs> was this amalgamation of a copywriter, a film director, the pitch man. He was the he was art director. He was everything in one. And I always like advertising. I'm I was I'm a sucker for like iconic, specifically art, iconic cartoon advertising characters like Tony the Tiger or Toucan Sam the Doughboy the. Yeah. Charlie Tuna. Like I've always just loved that sort of clean graphic character in, that sells in advertising. So I said, hey, I'm going to do – so I'm burnt from doing these movies. I've been doing commercials whilst making movies and use commercials to fund movies even. And I said, I'm going to take three years and just do commercials. That three years – turned into uh, seven, eight years. <laughs> and, yeah. then I, and then I said, okay, I'm going to make a documentary about stand-up comedy. Because, and it's called I Am Comic. It's on iTunes. It was on Netflix and Showtime for a long time, but it came out in like 2010, 2011. But in 2009, I said, okay, I need to do a feature film to stretch my creative legs and I need to, you know, express myself beyond 30 seconds, which I love the 30 second art form. Mm -hmm. And now in 2000, this is 2009 when I started shooting it. Now the tools are available that I can shoot it digitally. And I have a skill set that has been honed after a decade. I know how to tell a long form story. I know how to run the crew more efficiently. Like shoulda, coulda, woulda. But if I had the opportunity to do the third wheel all over again. Yeah. I mean, I'm at the top of my game, but who cares? That's not the way life works. <laughs> so, so what I come out of all this is I'm toughened up from a wonderful opportunity that maybe I wasn't ready for, or 
made, maybe I made the most of it. I mean, I took some guy's independent script that they hoped to go to festivals with and got it sold to Merrimax, and you can watch it today on Netflix. So that's a qualified victory that took 10 years. Yeah. And, and so the lesson is tenacity. The, the lesson is don't talk bad about Billy Bob Port Thornton on podcasts because maybe he's listening. I don't know. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but in 2010, when I went to slam dance and some other great festivals around the country with I Am Comic, it had a narrative arc. It was, it was a documentary. It was full of comedians. And it was, and it was, a, it was a story. So, so that first documentary, I Am Comic, was sort of the result of hard lessons learned. Uh, I knew to, how to sell it. I knew how to go to festivals. Um, it made its money back almost instantly. You know, I knew how to keep costs low. And so... If I hadn't have been through the third wheel, you know, Project Stoplight <laughs> and waking up in Blockbuster, as I call the other film, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have been able to make I Am Comic. And then since, since then, the next step that, that is more apropos to the film trooper audience is four years later, I make a sequel called I Am Road Comic. Mm-hmm. Available for $5 at IamRoadComic.com. Or it's on Hulu for free. And that movie I made for pennies, literally pennies, and sold for $5 through uh, two different sites. Gumroad, where you can put up your film and use it as a, I don't know what the term is, but they help you, you know, they, they run the marketplace for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and VHX is right. another one. And... After being to, I, I took it to some festivals that I was friendly with and said, I don't want to compete. I just want to show my film in front of an audience before I lock the picture. And it was such, uh, that, first of all, that's invaluable to be able to show your film in front of non-friends. Yeah. Who have no, they don't know anything other than, okay, the festival is putting their stamp of approval on it. Because you just sit and listen to the reaction. You know, you don't yeah. second guess everything. But um, from 2010 to 2015, or 2014, rather, so many things had changed, Scott. Like self, <laughs> the self-distribution model, digital cameras, Adobe Premiere, like a phoenix from the ashes, rises and surpasses the Avid in the final cut to give you a suite of tools. And I'm not paid by the Adobe people. But uh, I just made everything on the computer and sold it myself and then happened to pick up distribution a few months later. Did you, uh, so uh, I Am Road Comic has distribution. What, what company? Uh, Comedy Dynamics okay. is a new wave entertainment company. And when you watch any Netflix special, comedian, stand-up comedy special, they're the go-to people. Right, they're ah. the they're the Baskin Robbins of, of uh, stand-up comedy specials. They have every flavor. It's a name you can trust. In fact, Netflix loves buying stuff. I, I made a special for Maria Bamford. Mm -hmm. It's her all her material and wonderful ideas. She performed in front of her parents in her living room. <laughs> yeah, That's the entire hour special. And you can find it on Netflix. Yeah. 
It, uh, it, is it? It is, it is on Netflix. I yeah. have three properties on Netflix right now. Let me ask you, this is an amazing like journey and, and like the perspective and wisdom. So how does it, like, what is your perspective of the film festival? Because I've heard you just say how much you love it. Uh, what is, what should be the filmmaker's perspective or uh, realistic and uh, understanding of their role as it fits into the film festival and their expectations? You know, I, you know, from the outside perspective for a long time, the, the misnomer or the belief or the, the dream is we got to get our film finished and we got to get into a bunch of festivals and win awards and then cross my fingers and hope something like we get bought or like, you know, it's always like everyone's looking for the next thing. But what, what is your perspective on, um, what a film festival and how film uh, filmmakers should approach it? I, I agree with 72% of the way you describe the filmmaker's role in the film festival. And <laughs> okay. I believe that if you make a film, your independent film, uh, specifically an independent film, right? That's yeah, yeah. Okay. Pick and choose the festivals. And in hindsight, I, I, I tell people to budget for the festival experience. In other words, if you're making a movie for, let's say you're making a $50,000 movie. Mm-hmm. You're going to put it on credit cards. Your uncle's going to give you the money. Save 7000 so that you and some of the actors can go to Park City for two day, three days and publicize your film and get some buzz. And then the, the percentage of, that I don't agree with is, while yes, cross your fingers and you hope you get distribution, the marketplace is such now that you're going to get some weird you know, revenue split or a digital offer. And if that's the case, why not use the publicity and momentum that you gain at a festival? And just putting those gold leafs on your trailer on Vimeo and start selling the film. I mean, I think, I think the tips that you have at, at Film Trooper and the way that you approach it as an entrepreneur is so on point for the times we live in. Never before has the filmmaker had the, the tools to go out and sell to the marketplace. And never before has the film, make, the film gobbling up community, the film consumer, been able to be in touch with the filmmaker. You know, the Gumroad mm-hmm. people have, you know, they encourage the filmmakers to keep a mailing list and to, you know, keep in touch. And what I love about podcasting is, is I can feel it in the indie film world. There's a connection to the audience that was never before. Yeah. I mean, if you look at um, Kevin Smith, mm-hmm. okay? Kevin Smith, before he podcasted, seemed to be in touch with his audience. And he's embraced podcasting, does live appearances. He's a funny ass speaker. <laughs> I mean, I've only I met him twice. I, you know, he's not, I don't, we're not friends or anything. Yeah. I just, I admire. Not only are his films funny, but I admire the connection that he has with his audience. And now people like you telling people how they can do that and that people do want to support you. You know, one of the biggest one of the biggest drawbacks of selling I Am Road Comic on IamRoadComic.com for five dollars is that because it has so many stand up comedians, I sold it for five dollars <laughs> because Louis C.K., who didn't need the money, sold his special for $5. So other comedians, Jim Gaffigan and 
uh, Aziz Ansari, they all came out with the $5 special. Even Maria Bamford's was first sold for five. Like that became a thing overnight. Yeah. And, and I have so many stand-up comedians that I was, and it's only 68 minutes and it's like, okay. And it's shot with a camcorder and all that. So it's like, you know what? I'll just sell it for five bucks because in, in people's minds, it's a $5 special. It's a $5 download. Yeah. And the, both Gumroad and VHX had emailed me and said, hey, you're selling your product too low. <laughs> if you sold it for even 7 or $9, like 11 is the sweet spot. If you sell your film for 11 bucks, you'll sell far more units than you will at 5 bucks. And at that point, I'm, I was going on comedy podcasts, and you know, there's, it was hard because mine was a specialty subject. Yeah. I digress. I'm just saying that now to make your film for even 10 grand, because I'm, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Yeah. I Am Road Comic, available for $5 at IamRoadComic.com, free on Hulu, free on United Airlines now. Nice. It cost about $12,000. Yeah. So, and then, but uh, but it's being worked through the distribution, but they allow you to sell it directly on Gumroad, right? I, I negotiated with that I could still sell it because that's pennies to a company yeah. like that. And I can tell you that $5 at a time, I have made my money back. Yeah. Wow. That, that that's actually makes sense. That's a, that's a fantastic you know, success story in that respect because of, like you said, to be able to make your money back at that price point, you know, that's a lot of units you had to sell, you know? <laughs> and, but, and here's what I'm very proud of. I do it all through my cellular telephone. I have what's called a smartphone. And like today was payday. So I think, you know, a few dollars came in from this week or from two weeks ago on Gumroad. And they take 50 cents. And I, I did a podcast episode about this uh, you know, I sell for five bucks. I make four fifty. Yeah, fifty cents goes to the house, and that's on both. I think on VHS VHX TV. Yeah, is a great site. They have screeners you can send out, and it's a different interface. I think there I only make four twenty five. They take they take an extra cut for some reason, yeah. but it was worth it. They take PayPal now. Gumroad takes PayPal, but um, so to go from a film being picked up, a negative pickup from Merrimax to selling it where you get emails on your phone is quite a weird, quite a weird transition in just how different things are. But here's what I here's what I was getting at. You, your question was about film festivals. Mm -hmm. the The indie filmmaker that is fortunate enough to plan ahead and get into a film festival, my best advice is go and enjoy the film festival. Recognize that you are a part of their festival. Don't make like I went to Slam Dance the first year, and I realized everything that's good for Slam Dance is good for Dill Scallion. That was my film. Uh, everything that's good for Dill Scallion is good for Jordan Brady. Like we are all connected, and play your part. Like go to the functions, meet the other filmmakers, go see the other. I met Christopher Nolan. In 1999, because we were both at Slam Dance, and while my friends were off, like, "Oh, we're gonna go ski, or we're gonna, you know, go whatever," I'm like, "I'm gonna go see movies. I'm yeah. a filmmaker with a pass." And I got to see a film called The Following by Christopher Nolan that he made with 
like short ends on weekends with mm. the same actor. And he did Q&A. And I think the kid did all right. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and, and if you go there, like, yes, it's business, but have fun and meet these other filmmakers. And this is going to blow your mind. If you have a small enough film, meaning you don't need to hold all your cards close to your vest and you don't have a sales rep, you're just trying to do it yourself. Maybe even if you have a sales rep, I would sell the film at the festival. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I would have it on whether, I mean, I, Amazon, I think, was too much. They want too much money. They're living in the past. So, you know, Film Trooper has all the tools to sell your own film, right? Yeah, I mean, well, Film Tripper, it's, we just, the concept is basically, yeah, distribution is not the problem. You can pick, like you said, a various distribution uh, services like Gumroad, like VHX, Vimeo, or whatever it might be. Uh, it, it's just your, now you need to market and learn marketing. And like you said, this is a, an opportunity to capitalize on that. The film festivals have essentially become what you can look at it as uh, a filmmaker's version of a convention or their touring gig. So if you're, you know, you're going to be touring, you got to sell T-shirts, right? And CDs. So <laughs> this is your opportunity to sell T-shirts in your movie <clears throat> at, Absolutely. The, at the right audience. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, comedians make more money sometimes in merch than their, than their fee. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a T-shirt that has something from the film and it's catchy and, you know, like, I'm not saying you have to be Barnum and Bailey from the circus, but a little <laughs> bit of showmanship and a clever thing. People want to support you. People want a memento from that experience. And that's what the festival is ripe for. I mean, I, I'm I'm over the top about it because I love going to film festivals and I love talking to people after the film. You know, it's the the performer in me likes to talk to people. I love doing the Q&A. I usually have a pretty good, you know, shtick for the Q and A, <laughs> and and I wish I had T-shirts. You know, I yeah. sold I sold a few I Am Road comic T-shirts off my website, and one woman goes around the country to comedy clubs and has their black shirts, and she has a white sharpie that people sign. Different comedians, not even in the movie, they just comedians. They sign their shirt. Ah, interesting. That's very cool. <clears throat> but what? if you go there, if you go there stressed out, like we got to sell our film, you got to, yeah, yeah. we got to sell. Like yes, maybe lightning will strike, and yes, aim for the sky, but but have fun. Like Slam Dance has, like they used to do sledding, where you would, you know, everybody would go sledding, <laughs> and I love participating in that. And they have a, a hot tub round table with Slam with Sundance people, and there's parties, and and it's just like if if you think if you get inside your head too much you're going to miss out on a wonderful experience yeah that's and, and great advice and and like you said selling t-shirts or cds with the songs if you if if you made a if you had a film like i had a guy do beats actually I, he was in high school at the time because he went to school with my son rapper uh benz and uh this guy krush dj krush is his name he makes beats for my son and my son goes, Dad, why don't you have Krush make the beats for I Am Road comic? So here's this kid. He's barely 18. I met his folks. I said, hey, you know, I'm not a creepy dude. I really want your son to make this music. And I paid him cash. And uh, he's got a film credit. Now, I wish I gave him the publishing and the, the music. 
I said, you keep it and let me use it. But if I had the publishing, I would sell the, I would sell the, um, the soundtrack, the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, your listeners should know if you do original music, register the publishing and keep the publishing to the music because when they play it on cable, you could get money. I can tell you I made more money from the soundtrack of Dill Scallion playing on Showtime and, you know, hmm. movie time or whatever it's called than I, than I did from the movie because I paid that money for the, to buy the script back. Some of your little note there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And a, a mentor I had, Scott, early in my career as a producer, a mentor said, if you write songs and put them in your TV shows and in your movies, when you get a check from ASCAP or BMI, like I'm a BMI publisher and artist, you know, the two tracking mm -hmm. uh, you know, affiliations, they keep better track than at the when he when this is back in the 90s when I was learning about television. He said the TV markets are so scattered that if you get a check from the Philippines that your song played in the Philippines and it's a theme song to a TV show, you know that TV show must have played. Ah, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they, yeah. like my movie, Dill Scallion, I had 10 or 11 original songs that I wrote. And by the way, I shared the publishing and the songwriting credits and the money with the performers in the band that brought the songs to life. Yeah. In lieu of payment. You know, I said, hey, we'll just all split this money up. And so they've gotten checks. I have a friend who calls me every, you know, once a year, like, hey, I just got a check from you. <laughs> I imagine yours is bigger. Um, and so not only is it a system of checks and balances by having your music in there, but it's a source of income. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, that's another avenue um, of, like you mentioned, the publishing rights in a sense of exploiting your license in terms of if you own it, how many ways can you uh, create revenue streams for it? So that's an interesting little tidbit I never thought about before. Oh, yeah. And now with um, like TuneCore mm -hmm. is is uh, that's been around CD Baby back in the CD days. But TuneCore is one where they're an aggregator to put your songs on iTunes. So you pay a yearly fee or you pay per album, however it's structured. And it's similar to films. You know, you can put your uh, your film on iTunes if you pay a third party aggregator aggregator, yeah. yeah, which may or may not be worth it. I mean, there's another thing if I could mention, oh, Scott, please. you know, this is the first time I've been on many a podcast talking about <laughs> pimp and I am road comic for $5 at I am road comic.com. There's a, I've never divulged the price because even as shitty as it looks with my camcorder going around the Pacific Northwest, it doesn't look like, I mean, it, and the mix is great. I got a, I have like the mix alone would have been fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. There's a place in L.A. called Lime where they mix all your favorite commercials, mm -hmm. and they did me a solid. Nice. Okay. It's the first time I've divulged the price, but um, I have to say that part of the reason that I took it to the marketplace early and direct. Was and I hope this ties into your film festival question. Yeah, there's a comedian named Doug Benson. Mm -hmm. He made Super High Me, which is like where oh, yeah. 
instead of getting McDonald's food every day for 30 days, That's he, right. smoked, he smoked weed. Yeah. <laughs> then he spoofed Morgan Spurlock a second time with the greatest movie ever rolled. <laughs> and, and he's a great guy, and he has developed his brand, the Doug Benson brand, as the stoner comedian. He has a couple of, like three or four podcasts. He does Doug Loves Movies. So he's in I Am Road comic. He says, I said, hey, can I be on your podcast? He goes, yeah, let's do an episode with you and a couple guys from the movie. And uh, he's getting about 100,000 listeners when he drops the podcast. Yeah. And I had been to a few festivals. And I so it was June something of last year. And that was the first time I was going to go on and promote I Am Road comic. And he says to me, and I, I, I made my mind up about 10 days, two weeks before, but we were on stage live and the podcast has dropped the next day. And he says, Jordan, when's the movie coming out? And my answer was right now. Was it just spur of the moment or just like that moment because he asked you? You just went with it? No, no, because we booked the podcast. Oh, I see. A, I see. A month okay. ahead of time, or, you know, I booked a theater. We showed the movie, then we did the podcast. Okay, okay, gotcha. Thank great. You. So, Thank you. so I made my mind up once Doug Benson and his hundred thousand listeners said, "You can be on my podcast, and we'll promote the movie." That's when I made up my mind. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lock the picture, get the mix, get the music. Everything's going to be ready. I researched and found Gumroad and then in VHX. But mm -hmm. for, at first, I just found Gumroad. I tested it. I bought it from myself. I played it. I knew what was going on. And then on stage, he said, when is it released? I said, right now, <laughs> meaning by the time it drops, mm -hmm. it's live. And, that, and, and I made uh, probably a third of that cost back the next day. My God, that's perfect. It's like it's our it's like the new version of you doing the um, press circuit, the press junket, or the talk show junket. You know, now you have this access. He has a, a large enough audience that's connected in alignment with what your film is about, and then boom, you you had a call to action that said it's available right now. <laughs> that's like and, a no brainer for the listeners. Oh, sweet, boom. Yeah, and and I got to tell you, I mean, I, I'm not patting myself on the back. It was like. That was a eureka moment, mm -hmm. you know, to go, oh, shit, I have to take advantage of this. And there were filmmakers before me. Like it, when I went to Slam Dance in 2010 with I Am Comic, right, the, yeah. the, pre the prequel, there were filmmakers selling DVDs in 2010 at the festival. Because viewers would walk out of the film and they loved it and they go, here, you can own it. <laughs> and they were selling for 20 bucks. And they're saying, you can help me pay for this trip. <laughs> and, and, that, and I was like, wow, aren't you? But it's, to a distributor, it's not only a drop in the bucket of money they're not going to lose, but it's also proof. It's also proof that there's an audience for your film. If you, even if I sold, let's say I, let's say I made $100,000 off of my $5 downloads. Mm-hmm. That's still not enough money to deter someone from picking it up. It might even be ammunition. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right? Because right? Yeah. they're like, hey, there's a market. And that's a, that's a tip of the iceberg. So deciding like, okay, I could spend another six months going to film festivals hoping to get a distributor who's going to take 40%, who's going to eat up advertising costs, or I can go on podcasts. So I went from Doug Benson to 
Never Not Funny with Jimmy Pardo. Oh, yeah. I went to the Sklar Brothers who do Sklarboro mm-hmm. Country. It's a kind of a sports podcast. But, you know, all these comedians had me on the small podcast, you know, Rosie Trans. You may not know her, but she had a podcast. And every week that I could do a podcast, I would see a spike on the sales craft from my gum road. <laughs> and it was amazing. And then... um the last big one I did was Mark Marin. It's called What the Fuck. It's one of the he had President Obama on recently. Oh yeah. And so I was on his show last fall, September, September, October. He's also in the movie. And I saw another spike in sales. And what's weird about podcasts, so I'm pitching you and your listeners <laughs> as part of the film trooper kit, the entrepreneurial kit for the independent filmmaker. Find a podcast with those, how did you call them? Uh, the, the in alignment with your audience, meaning like you had a documentary about comedians. So it makes sense to be in alignment with a bunch of comedy podcasts because people that are into comedy are listening to comedy podcasts. So boom, it makes sense. So you're right. If somebody is making like a horror film to get on like a horror podcast or horror YouTube show, you know, something like that. Comedy Film Nerds is a podcast by the guys who do, um, they put on the LA Podcast Fest, PodFest. There you go. And Comedy Film Nerds had me on. That was a huge spike. I mean, Doug Benson's and Mark Maron's still were kind of the biggies and, uh, you know, big spike in sales after those dropped. But I would think that any independent film could find a podcast relevant to their audience. And they love having guests. And, you know, podcasters like you you and I met through the Internet and through podcasting. Yeah. That's amazing. That's some great tidbits there, which is perfect way we can round it up. I know we've hit about an hour here. But before we go, I really wanted to know, what's the one thing that you wish other filmmakers would ask you more often or something that doesn't come off enough times that you're always wondering, like, you know what? I wish somebody would just always ask me that because this is what I would say. <laughs> I don't know if you have that. Yeah, that's a great. No, that's a great question. I wish they would ask me how how to best diffuse a what can be a tense situation when you're making a film. Hmm. That's you're. That's a great question because, like we mentioned, a lot of the blog posts or interviews or um podcasts people talk about so much of the rosy stuff but the reality is is sometimes you find yourself in a very tense situation when because you're working with people and egos and expectations so what is your advice of how to best diffuse it after so many years working in the industry of what wisdom have you come away with relax and breathe <laughs> Perfect. And to love take it. a pause, take a breath, and if you keep a sense of humor, you know, I had someone uh tell me after a shoot, a commercial shoot, she said, I've I've never seen someone lead so decisively and passively. And I had to kind of Google, like I didn't think of myself as passive, but she she had she had emailed me this compliment. Like I've, it was, it was, it was deft because instead of yelling back when people were getting frustrated, you know, the grips are yelling at the art guys and whatever. And these are bigger budget commercials where 
you know, there's a lot of money, but there's a lot people want to get done. So that it's kind of tense sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and I have been blessed with the gift of humor to be able to like, just quietly yell. I'll, I'll often say, respect the process. Let's do it efficiently. Slower is the new faster. Calm down, everybody. So it is a passive tone, but it's an assertive leadership role that, you know, make no mistake, I'm in charge and I'm not going to allow these tempers to feel. I was on set last week on a McDonald's commercial and we had a woman, we were shooting a woman at the drive through and I wanted her to roll up to the speaker. And there was a, a PA in a car behind her that was going to roll up like another car's in line. And I saw him pull up and her back up at the same time, heading towards each other. Oh, this and I, for, yeah. <laughs> did she get like, a, was she rolling by accident? No, she thought she would back up to do another take. Oh, I see. And, and the other kid was kind of moving up to his position. And, I, and I'm 40, 40, 50 feet away with the DP and the ADs next to me because it's a wide shot. And I yell, stop. And I put my fist up, universal sign for both black power and stop. <laughs> And, and they both stop. And the AD looked at me. He goes, I've got it under control. There's no need. There's no need to yell. And he's walking towards the car. And he goes, that we don't need to, you know, you don't yell. And I was like, excuse me? He goes, and I, I've got her on a walkie. Like there's a walkie-talkie in her car. And he goes up and he opens the door and he says to her, no, just stop right here. And, and I had yelled, I will fucking yell when I feel I need to yell. And I'm yelling because two cars were going towards each other and we're not done yet. Like someone's going to get hurt or you're going to scratch a car. Yeah. And he came back and I said, are we good now? Because I got it out of my system. Are you good? And he goes, yeah, I'm really sorry. I freaked. And I go, yeah, don't freak in front of everyone because then I'm, you're throwing the gauntlet down that I, the director, have to pull my dick out and yell louder. And that's not what today is about. So if you stay calm, I'll stay calm. And that can't happen again. And I was totally mellow about it. And then he goes, no, I understand. Yes, sir. And I said, besides, if you had a walkie, why'd you have to walk up to the car? <laughs> and he laughed and the DP laughed. I didn't dress him down in front of everybody just to do it. Yeah. You know, but I, I think if people relaxed a second and kept a calm thing, but young filmmakers regardless of your age, like wherever you are, if you're young in your career, do know that everyone, and I know we got to wrap up, everyone is there to make you look good. By default, if you're the director, the other people on the team want to help you because you're the guy or the woman who got the project going. Even if it's a no money thing, like you, know, you and I talked about, uh, you have a great strategy of, uh, work for a few hours, everybody go take a lunch themselves, do your own thing, come back and work. Even those people that are working for free to support the project, once they sign on, they'll give you, they want to give you 100%. Mm -hmm. So treat them with respect and they will, they'll go, to, go battle with you, man. Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I'd uh, love to have you on again. There's more stuff I'd love to pick your brain about in terms of uh, your experience, your wisdom, and just sort of what you're seeing happening and all that kind of stuff as, 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 this, as this whole industry, this whole new dynamic of the world 
of creating content and sharing it to an audience directly as it evolves right in front of our eyes. Like you said, it's in the last few years, there are so many things that have happened that has just completely changed what we knew, you know, a couple of years, like 10 years ago. So, oh, and it's amazing. And, and I have to say thank you for the videos that you post. I mean, even some of the stuff you find on YouTube and retweet is I, I that's how I'm that's how we met. <laughs> I, I, like you, you deliver con you're a wonderful, not only source for the entrepreneur in every filmmaker. And, and I'm sure you've awakened the entrepreneur within many a filmmaker, but I think you're a wonderful curator of knowledge that in the stuff that you post. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate I, it. I, I wish I had you uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> I wish I had me 10 years ago, too. <laughs> I mean, I think what there's in that respect, like, man, it's that whole that old saying, like what I know now. I wish I knew then what I know now, that type of a thing for sure. <laughs> oh, for sure. But hey, I appreciate you having me on. I'm very flattered and humbled that you'd have me on. And uh, we should definitely do some follow ups. And I'd love to talk to your listeners with you about commercials mm -hmm. and, and what, you know, one of your questions you had emailed, I, I thought was like, is there any uh, fulfillment of the soul yeah. in what? doing 30 second commercials? I mean, definitely I, I could, you know, I, I'm known to ramble as everyone knows now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Have, we'll have you back on. And I know that you do sometimes these workshops in LA about commercial directing. So if you got another one coming up, you know, let me know. I'll I'll keep posted as well because I follow your podcast. When and does this? When does this? When are we? When are we listening? What is? Well, what is now? What like is a month, now? Month from now? No, is now no. a month? Let's see. That's a good question. I have you slated to go. We'll probably go live here, and I'll probably post this uh, the second week of September. So like between the seventh and the eleventh. Oh my gosh! September thirteenth is my boot camp, commercial directing boot camp. Oh, okay. And and it, there are a couple slots left, and it, all the information is at jordanbrady.com. There's a boot camp button. But, uh, Scott, a, I've never done it. This is the first one. Oh, it is. I thought, oh, no, I, I, you did, did. I did one online where I took questions online through a, like a chat room thing. Okay. And it was, it was pretty successful in terms of that engagement. And I, I think that's what I'm taking away from this conversation is you're not only a filmmaker, but you're engaging with people that – like what you do and you're going to meet like-minded people and have these you know these virtual friends yeah yeah what what could be better yeah it definitely it's it's neat <laughs> it's the the lamest uh description i can give it but it, i just it's really neat <laughs> groovy cool well i will um i'll keep you posted and i will make sure that i put all the relevant uh relevant links to this uh podcast so when people see it the show notes you know, they see your movie, they see your boot camp coming up, they know where to find you on your podcast. Um, it's just, it's all, all good stuff. And I'm just really excited to have an opportunity to meet you. And, and I will definitely follow up with you. It's Friday. You got to get out there. I got to go drink something, I think. Going home right now to have a cocktail. There you go. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Bye now. That concludes my interview with Jordan Brady over at respecttheprocess.com. It's a really, really good podcast worth checking out. Um, if you get a chance. If you like this podcast, then please think about leaving a ratings review on iTunes. All you have to do is go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes and leave an honest rating review. We really, really appreciate it. We're almost at 100 episodes. 
So I'm trying to get more reviews uh, to spread the word about the podcast. With that said, I'd like to acknowledge J.W. Omaha, who left a five-star rating with the title, Absolutely a Must for Indie Filmmakers. So thank you, J.W. Omaha. I really appreciate the ratings review. And of course, don't go away empty-handed, because if you are stuck trying to make your film, then head on over to freegearguide.com and get an equipment list of everything I use to make a feature film with no crew over at freegearguide.com. That's it for this episode of the Film Trooper Podcast. I will see you guys later. Thanks. Thanks.